Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is your host, Brian Perking. Um, I am um, waiting on our guest uh, to call in. And uh, we had just a little bit of uh, technical difficulty a little earlier today. You know, um, it happens. Uh, but we're waiting on Dr. Daniel Hirschman uh, to join us. He is a professor, sociology professor. Um, at Brown University, and um, he has been writing and doing some awesome work um, looking at the intersection of race and economics, and so um, really um, looking forward to this conversation today, um, but uh, we have um, one of uh, our um, program associates um, working on getting him on the line for us. Um, the, the reason I was particularly interested in having Daniel join tonight is because he studies a lot of the kind of the back behind the scenes information and data around racial inequality. Uh, some years ago, and it was really fascinating to me as a professor uh, that I was introduced to uh, by the name of Martin Carnoy, um, uh, economics professor at Stanford University out in California. And he wrote a book, um, and it really opened my eyes. And I, I, um, I'm going to you know, try to paraphrase a little bit um, of what he, what, what was really fascinating to me about what uh, Dr. Carnoy wrote about, and I was hoping that, uh, and I still hope that uh, Dr. Hirschman will be available to talk about it a little bit, but, and I'll never forget this about uh, in this, in this book um, that, that I read, and this was some years ago during my uh, doctoral studies at Columbia, um, Dr. Carnoy uh, wrote this book called Faded Dreams. The Politics and Economics of Race in America was the subtitle. And any of you interested in getting this book, I'd strongly recommend it, although the data at this point is some 30 years old almost, but um, because he used a lot of data from 1990 and the 1990 census, but a really interesting um, and disturbing um, fact out in a table that that really struck me and I'll share with you and I would love to know where this is today and it's about the gap um, even as we talk about pay and so if you can follow along with me a little bit I'll try to describe it so what he did was he looked at the pay of ethnic groups relative to white pay and um, and so, um, actually, um, it looks like that, um, Dr. Hirschman may be on now. Let me, I'll come back to my point in just a moment. Uh, let's see um, if this is Dr. Hirschman. Dr. Hirschman, is that you? Yes, it is. I'm so sorry I was running late. Um, no, no, not a, child pro- care, not daughter, a problem. Childcare, daughter, sick, all the usual things. 
Oh, yeah, I, I certainly understand. But thank you. Thank you so much for uh, being able to join me. I was just talking to the audience a little bit, saying a little, you know, a mm-hmm. little introduction about who you were. And, and actually part of what uh, uh, really interested in me in this topic, uh, the work that you're mm-hmm. doing. So I'm, I'm going to uh, just stop and we'll come back to what I started talking about. But I want to... Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk to you first. Uh, have you introduced yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself mm-hmm. and some of the work you're doing. I know you. I've read quite a few of the the, the pieces. Looking forward to your book, uh, Unequal Knowledge. Really looking forward to that. Uh, but just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what you're doing at Brown, and and uh, your research. Well, thank you so much again for having me. Um, my name is Dan Hirschman. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at Brown University. Um, my work broadly is about economic sociology and science studies or sociology of knowledge. So it's how we make knowledge about economic stuff and the consequences of that. I'm really interested in economic experts like economists and sociologists um, and how the sorts of things they do affect what we think is going on with the economy. Um, so what we think is going on with gender inequality or racial inequality and how that affects the kinds of policies we propose and debate and pass or don't pass. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I also do some work on other topics, like I have a project on um, the politics of uh, race and affirmative action in college admissions um, and financial regulations and financial markets. But I think today we're going to talk mostly about uh, sort of these debates over how we think about inequality, um, particularly around uh, gender and race. So gotcha. uh, as you mentioned, I'm writing a book, and the book is about um, sort of the history of inequality as told through the histories of three particular numbers. Uh, the first of those numbers is the story of the rise of the 1%. So as many people probably know in your audience, um, the sort of incomes of the top 1% of income earners have really dramatically grown in the last 40 years, um, the sort of super rich. But that kind of fact was only really discussed starting in like around 2010. And so the question is sort of, given that incomes were going up for so long, why did it take 30 years for anyone to talk about it? And that has mm-hmm. a lot to do with sort of what economists and sociologists focused on, uh, what kinds of data they were looking at, the questions they were asking. And so it really did take a bit for those sort of that um, awareness of those top incomes to kind of uh, seep in and then diffuse out and be something we all talked about, you know, from Occupy Wall Street or Bernie Sanders or whoever. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. one number. The second number is the gender wage gap, which is a number you see, um, you know, mobilized a lot in discussions around gender inequality. Um, right now, it's about 82 cents on the dollar. So that's the average uh, full-time working woman makes 82% of what the average full-time working man makes. Um, that's a really interesting number that has its own sort of complicated and long history. Um, but one key thing to know about it right away is it's really commonly misunderstood. People think it means that, um, that women working the exact same jobs as men make 18% less. Um, but it doesn't mean that, and it's never meant that. It refers to this kind of economy-wide average which doesn't really control for all sorts of things that are sort of the reasons we know why there's inequality, namely that men and women work different jobs and women's jobs mostly are paid less. Mm-hmm. Um, but that often gets sort of miscommunicated or lost in the conversation. Um, and so sort of that chapter is sort of the history of the number and how it's been debated. And the last chapter, um, the last sort of uh, concrete empirical chapter, looks at the history of the racial wealth gap, which is mm-hmm. uh, another kind of newcomer in the equality scene. So if you go back 20 or 30 years, people talk about racial inequality. They mostly talk about income or uh, unemployment or incarceration, uh, for example. But they didn't really talk about wealth. And for whatever reason, and, and there are reasons, 
sociologists and economists haven't really studied personal wealth that much until recently. It was sort of off the agenda. We don't have good data about it. There weren't theories about how it mattered. In the last 25, 20 years, a group of economists and sociologists sort of pushed the idea that we should be focusing more on wealth and less on income because it really shows the sort of stark differences between black and white households in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, income gaps in the U.S. are significant, um, but racial wealth gaps are much, much larger, um, somewhere between mm -hmm. 10 and 20 times, um, depending on how you measure it. And, and focusing on racial wealth gaps really highlights the kind of history of racial inequality. And focusing on income can sometimes obscure it. And so um, these economists, people like Sandy Darity and Derek Hamilton and sociologists like Tom Shapiro, Melvin Oliver, uh, really did a ton of work in the 2000s and 2010s to get people to start talking about wealth. And I think that's had a really big impact on how we talk about racial inequality, such that now we're talking about things like baby bonds and reparations and student loan forgiveness, all in terms of how they'd affect the racial wealth gap and reduce racial wealth inequality. And that's really sure. a result of the kind of work those scholars did. Um, so that's what the book's about, and that's the, the kind of work I do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, fascinating. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, uh, 20, 30 years ago, um, I, I personally didn't know much about wealth, and, and I now I have, um, you know, my 20, um, early 20 your old daughter talking about building wealth, you know, and so it is definitely mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. something that's being discussed a lot. Um, before you came on, I was I was sharing with um, with the audience that uh, one one reason that I was really interested in the topic. I mean, you know, I've read, as I said, I came across a few of your articles, and uh, mm -hmm. particularly one talking about economic sociology of race. I want to get back to some mm -hmm. of the points made there. But um, mm -hmm. during my uh, doctoral studies at Columbia, I, I ran across a professor at uh, Stanford, um, and I'm sure you, you know him as an economist, um, Martin Carnoy, out in, at, um, in their education econo uh, economics department. And, and one book he wrote... Um, uh, and I'm trying to remember the name of it right offhand, but it was, oh, Faded Dreams. That's what it was called, Faded Dreams, The Politics and Economics of Race in America. And I was sharing that mm -hmm. there was one chart in there that really fascinated me, and the chart was this. It was really about uh, the race wage gap. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I actually used it in a course I used to teach in, in, in politics and um, in education, but um, what what essentially the chart was was showing um, uh, other groups. Um, you had white as the the group that we were comparing other racial groups to in terms of income, mm -hmm. because right, whites had the highest income level, and so the the chart showed um, other racial wage. Um, income on an average mm -hmm. uh, relative to white income, white wage earnings, mm -hmm. I should say. And what what it showed, it showed first it said, okay, at high school, um, here's what whites with a high school diploma make, here's what Hispanics, mm -hmm. blacks, and so forth, and then it went all the way up to graduate education. And what fascinated mm -hmm. me and disturbed me at the same time was that at the high school level that 
at that time, we're talking about circa 1990, that blacks made closer to what whites earned. So at the high school level, mm-hmm. it was something like they made 92% of what whites earned mm-hmm. on average. If you were black and a high school graduate, you made 92% of what a white earned at, that was a high school graduate. But mm-hmm. as you got more education, you earned mm-hmm. less as a percentage of white mm-hmm. income. And so the number dropped all the way down to like 68%. So if you had a graduate degree and were African-American, you made 68% of other African, I mean, of whites at the same uh, level. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it, it was stark for me to understand mm-hmm. kind of the, the, the differences that happen and yet we, you know, just going back to the point you made earlier about how that there were some aspects uh, that um, economists weren't talking about and weren't really mm-hmm. studying as much. And the point that you made in like kind of right up front in your that article towards an economic sociology of race is that you say mm-hmm. race is central to economic life but it has not been mm-hmm. central to economic sociology. So I would just want, mm-hmm. so what, what exactly is it? What was it that um, something that prevented the, the scientists from wanting mm-hmm. to study it or were they discouraged? What, what is it that kept people from, from really investigating why or the, the, the intersection between race and economics? That's a great question. And so I think there are a couple different ways to answer it. Um, I think slightly different things can be going on in economics proper versus sociologists studying related topics. Um, and it's one thing to say is, you know, there have always been economists and sociologists who have studied race, um, particularly black men economists and sociologists going back to the early 20th century, people like W.B. Du Bois uh, yeah. and, and some of his students and others. And so it's not like there hasn't been people showing how this could be done and making the case for it. Um, but frequently those scholars were excluded from kind of the display mainstreams and their work was not treated as seriously or taken um, as, as, as important uh, by other scholars in the field. So that's one, you know, that dynamic happened. So it's not as though he couldn't do this um, or he couldn't make these claims. People were making them and, and, and they were sort of not winning out within their academic fields. So the question becomes sort of why did sociologists and economists not, not think this stuff was important or not think it was important enough, or not think it was central. And I think um, the story still waits to be completely told. Um, I have some sense of, of some of the particular dynamics that took place, in, for example, in sociology in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that led race to being kind of downplayed. I think part of what the story is is that um, in the mid-20th century, there was a sense that um, the main topics when you studied race were uh, you were either studying kind of like government policy, like federal policy, like um, or state policy, like segregation, um, but things that were seen as kind of explicitly about race or the Civil Rights Act and its passage, or more often you were studying sort of prejudices and discrimination and individual level attitudes. And that neither of those things was sort of seen as central to the economy. They're kind of like error terms, mm. right? Um, a lot of the dominant perspectives in economics in the mid-20th century said, you know, discrimination should be competed away. Um, if mm. you've got a case for discrimination and you're an employer, you're going to have to pay white workers because you're not willing to hire black workers, and so you're going to go out of business. 
because your competitors can be able to get, get cheaper labor than you or more efficient labor than you or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which, in retrospect, I mean, even at the time, seemed kind of absurd, but uh, certainly from today's perspective, it, it feels even more so. Um, but I think that um, a lot of this has to do with how we conceptualize sort of what race was and what racism was. That racism was restricted, you know, in most people's minds throughout the period as sort of a thing that lived in your head. So a set of ideas you had, preferences, beliefs, um, and it wasn't, you know, structures. It wasn't how we built the whole economic system. It wasn't how we built the laws and the corporations and the histories of the fortunes and the cities and all of this. And so I think these structural perspectives on race and racism that have become sort of more prominent uh, in sociology starting in the 80s and 90s, I think, um, and are starting to get a little traction in economics as well, um, make it easier to see how race and racism are so tightly connected to markets, economies, and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's an opening for that now, but it, we had to get past, and we're still having to do the work of getting past, um, these kinds of uh, leading understandings about what race is and what racism is. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm glad you, you pointed out um, a little bit about um, racism um, because, you know, and, and I've had a number of people that have been on the show that have talked about, from a historical perspective, the economic uh, benefit that the country has received from mm-hmm. racism and race, racist practice. So, you know, one of the, the biggest, and I've noticed to say one of the biggest, is the institution of slavery. And mm-hmm. and anytime you want to talk about that, you know, it, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, look, let's not get back into it. We know it was wrong, mm-hmm. but without understanding that there are, there are it, for lack of better words, dynasties and wealth mm-hmm. that exist, not because of slavery today, you know, the, but the, the kind of the long lasting mm-hmm. economic impact of that on families and even to the, in contrast, the deficit of other families that were enslaved, right? Mm-hmm. So that there's an mm-hmm. economic piece to this. And, and I guess what my question, next question is, is that, is I, I know some of what you've you've talked about is from a historical perspective, but now there seems to be so much uh, opposition and resistance to the conversation of how historical racist practice uh, and, and, um, and, and, and structural racism, which some people say doesn't exist, um, but you've you've gone on record about structural racism in some of your writing, mm-hmm. but they say it doesn't. So what do you do now that that you know like there's a growing a growing sentiment that we shouldn't even we shouldn't talk about this. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, um, maybe a depressing sentiment, but I feel kind of optimistic about that in the sense that I think the resistance is being manifested. I think that attitude was always there. I think there was a large, possibly even a majority for much of the recent American history, group of people who didn't want to have this conversation, uh, who believed racism was over or that it wasn't a problem at all, um, who were just outright explicitly endorsing of, of various kinds of racism. And I think those people didn't have to do a lot of work for much of the 20th century because they weren't really losing ground and they were getting most of what they wanted, even in the post-civil rights era, uh, particularly in the 80s and 90s, where you, you see a lot of the gains of the 60s and 70s get rolled back. 
um, you know, affirmative action programs get challenged and taken down kind of piecemeal um, and, and so on. And you see mass incarceration ramp up and having all these sort of racialized impacts. So if you were someone who has kind of quietly racist attitudes, beliefs, preferences, uh, you didn't have to do a lot to sort of see white people still be on top throughout this period. Um, and in the last 10 years, um, especially, you know, following the rise of Black Lives Matter, for example, um, you know, conversations have been back on the forefront again and in, in ways that are, I think, getting to the heart of the issue, the structural racism, the historical legacies in this. And that's made people, you know, who don't want to have those conversations have to sort of speak up. And so now we're having the fight you sort of didn't have the previous 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. so, um, so on the one hand, I think we're seeing growing discourse around it. We're seeing a lot more explicit pushback. We're seeing, you know, laws being passed in various states banning teaching critical race theory, which by that, which they mean like any discussion of racism in U.S. history at all, right? We're seeing all that, and it is, you know, terrifying on some level, but I, I don't think it reflects something that's new. I think it reflects something that's old being forced into the open. Um, so now we're actually having this fight. There's a concept in sociology of um, sort of degrees of power or faces of power, and, the, and there's an idea that um, we, we often think about power in terms of the first dimension, which is sort of two people have a fight and one, one of them wins. But a lot of the exercise of power in society is sort of second or third dimensional power where someone else sets the rules of the game so that mm -hmm. one party, the other party can't win or the other party didn't even try to have the fight. And so mm -hmm. I feel like we've moved from a fight that's kind of more second or third dimensional on some of these issues where it's a fight about can we even have this conversation? So now we're actually having it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know who's going to win, and that's great. But in some level, the fact that we're actually having the debate out in the open um, yeah. is a sign that, it, you know, that the conversation has shifted in a way that I think is, well, at least there's a chance, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I, and I hear you. Better, you know, one, better late than never, but better some conversation than no conversation at all. I, I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I guess the... The the other part about it is that I I I wonder how many people are listening, you know, um, which mm -hmm. brings me to my next question for you is who who is your audience? Like, I mean, you're mm -hmm. you're you're put you're presenting some really important information about what the gender wage gap is, and the, especially uh, some of the groundbreaking work on wealth gap. Um, mm -hmm. Who who are you actually um, targeting to understand this? Um, is it, you know, the the politicians? Um, who, who, who actually? So I think there's a lot of different audiences, and they need somewhat different messages. So a lot of the research I've done has really affected my teaching. I talk about the racial gap when I teach about organizations, when I teach about infrastructure sociology, when I teach about all sorts of things. And it's really eye-opening for a lot of students. You know, until recently, they hadn't really heard these numbers. So it really, I think, helps to set the conversation up correctly for talking about something like structural racism to open with the racial wealth gap, say, instead of opening with um, income disparities or some other uh, way of getting into the topic. So it's definitely, you know, I think it's something that shows up in teaching and is really productive in that space. Uh, I think there's also, you know, a lot of public conversation. Um, again, most of the folks I'm studying who are doing this work, the really hard work of getting these numbers out there in the public and using them to justify kind of bigger and bolder interventions to try to reduce racial equality uh, in really productive ways. Um, people like Sir Hamilton is working with Cory Booker on baby bonds or uh, mm -hmm. Sam Garrity pushing reparations. 
And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's really effective public-facing work that's really moving, moving the conversation. Um, I also, and I've been surprised, I've had some really good reception from some sort of like important organizations that are interested in thinking about what structural racism means for them as an organization. So there's a lot of interest right now in kind of diversity work, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, yep. and I think a growing recognition that a lot of ways that was being talked about for the past 20 years weren't really working. There's a fair bit of good mm-hmm. research by people like Frank Dobbin at Harvard showing that diversity trainings just don't do much. Um, sometimes they can backfire. Uh, but organizations, some of them at least, are still kind of interested in doing better. And so um, I write a blog that doesn't have a huge readership, but uh, one of my posts got picked up by someone at the United Nations who is working on a, um, an internal survey to figure out how race and racism were operating in the UN organization. And I've been in conversation with them ever since, trying to, to you know, get these ideas about structural racism to be useful to an organization trying to identify the ways in which it is sort of complicit in that process or exacerbating mm-hmm. it. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, um, there are policy who are interested in this stuff. There are, you know, important organizations, be they private, for profit or not, um, that are interested. Uh, and I think the public at large, either in the form of sort of like, you know, undergraduate students from my classroom or people reading the news, um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are versions of these messages that are relevant to all those audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of my academic work is, is mostly for other academics because that's what you do to get tenure, uh, and because I also, you know, think it's important to to have those kind of conversations to figure things out. But then I do a lot mm-hmm. of public facing work too, um, because I think, as you say, like there's a lot of people who, um, for whom this message is, I think, can resonate and, and do a lot of good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I know we're we're running out of time, but I I do, I do want to oh. ask you, tell me, you know. Most researchers have something that they that they find that they want everyone to know about. You know, like this is what I this is what I know. Mm-hmm. This is what I've learned from my research. I've done the same things. Like mm-hmm. if you don't know anything else about what I've what I've found out, this is what I want you to know. What would that be for you? What what is it that you you you've done such great work on these topics? But what what is the thing that you would like? Um, people to know the most? I think for purposes of this conversation, um, I think one thing that's really come clear to me, and it's not mostly from my own work, but something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, is just how deeply embedded racism is in American society and in the American economy. And that when we're talking about economic inequality, we're always already talking about racial inequality and vice versa. And so I just think um, that's super important because there's a lot of distracting conversations that will happen sometimes where people will say, you know, class, not race, or race, not class, um, as if those things weren't always already bound up together. And so Mm. that's not a new insight to me, but it's something that um, I think becomes really clear when you start looking at the history of how economists and sociologists have dealt with race and not dealt with it that well at certain moments. It's when they've forgotten Mm -hmm. that lesson that they've messed up, Mm -hmm. um, when they've tried Mm -hmm. to treat these things too separately. And so that's Mm -hmm. one kind of key insight I want people to know. Um, a second one, I guess, would just be um, to be um, aware of how numbers get made and mm. that um, numbers are very powerful, but they, someone had to do the work to make them, and there are always choices that go into that. And those choices are political, not necessarily political in the sense of, like, pro-Democrats or pro-Republicans in, like, a partisan sense, but they're political mm-hmm. in the sense that um, they shape the possibilities of how the numbers get interpreted and what we, how we see the world. And mm-hmm. so, you know, things change depending on which numbers you look at and how you, what choices you use to make those numbers. And so um, there's a lot of ways to, to lead with them or just to, to misunderstand the world. 
And so just to be, on the one hand, skeptical sometimes, but also to just embrace the fact that all forms of knowledge are things people have to do the work to make. And so that doesn't make them false. It just makes them particular. Um, they're, they're a view from somewhere, not from nowhere. And so when you look at something like the racial wealth gap or the racial income gap, neither of them is a wrong number. They're just telling you somewhat different stories. They're both really useful and meaningful. And so mm-hmm. um, approaching numbers with a little bit of uh, humility and skepticism, but also recognizing how they do have a lot of power to um, simplify the world in ways that make it easier to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. those are two, two big things. I don't know if that's the kind of thing you're going yeah, for, but that's yeah, where my, exactly. my mind went. No. Yeah, no, absolutely. Very, very helpful and insightful. Thank you so much for that. And um, certainly I'm looking forward. Um, uh, do you know when your book is going to be released? No, it's, it's not. The last chapter is not written yet. Uh, I'm hoping to have a full draft in the next few months. And then my guess is you know, late next year, or the one after. But um, it's yeah. got to go through some reviews and stuff first. So we're not, we're not sure, there yet, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Sure. Well, I'm, I am certainly looking forward to it. Um, like I said, this, Thank you. you know, especially um, with, you know, the importance of this, uh, these areas, just getting a little more um, kind of a sharper edge on what some of this means, particularly as I say, around these gaps. Um, and I think mm-hmm. we, it might for some people help them uh, to, to grapple with some of the, the ways in which we can address them, you know, so it's like, this is how mm-hmm. it exists and what we can mm-hmm. do uh, to mitigate the, the existence of these gaps. So thank you again for, for being on top of this work and um, uh, we'll be on the lookout. Um, I, the working title now uh, for those of you who might be interested and in keeping your eye out on it uh, as well as unequal knowledge, the stylized facts of inequality. So um uh, Daniel, thanks again, and um, I'll be I'll be on the lookout for other articles. Um, but until then, next time we talk, go well, stay well. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.